Welcome to Matrix 404, where we are talking everything Matrix related leading up to the release of the new film, Matrix Resurrections, this year in December. Leading you on this journey from the Matrix into the real world is me, Therese Laxon, entertainment editor at The Beat and co-founding editor of Nerdifiles, and Avery Kaplan, features editor of The Beat and com officer at Prism Comics. Avery, I am very excited to talk about the Matrix with you, but first we got to talk about that trailer from Resurrections. Yes, the trailer finally arrived. I know, I was, I was I was so excited at coming out and I was like, oh, perfect timing for us to talk about it. Yes. So my favorite thing in the trailer, I think, was the color games because mm. I'm going crazy trying to figure out why the, the character whose name we don't know yet has blue hair when it seems like it should maybe be like a red-coated person and this younger, apparently younger version of Morpheus and a red shirt on, so that seems hopeful. And then I really like, I think maybe my single favorite shot in the entire trailer was the rubber ducky, because to my mind, green minus red equals yellow, so he's got yellow on the brain. I love, I love that. Um, MPH had the blue glasses too. Oh yeah, yeah. I think also the um the scenes with. There are people saying that like a lot of the scenes were like sort of golden colored that like that's how Neo is looking as seeing the Matrix code by the end of the third movie and that it's set in San Francisco and the the like the Matrix is appears to be like Sati's Matrix yeah. version and like Priyanka Chopra is like the older version of Sati. Oh. And like the blue haired girl, I think she's supposed to be Trinity because there's like a scene where trinity like carrie ann moss is like screaming or something and like you see like a like a reverberation of images around her and like some of them uh, are, are jessica henwick who i think is the blue-haired actress i'm pretty sure i yeah so i think that's connected but yeah it's interesting that her hair is blue maybe it's like a sign that she's like in the matrix but like needs to get out in some way i'm not sure oh or that her appearance is actually a, f a facade that could be yeah interesting yeah i'm interested in like how they're gonna do like the whole like it seems like time plays a factor in it because you have a younger version of morpheus played by uh yaya abdul mateen and then you have an older trinity and neo and an older sati who within the matrix they can stay looking the same way forever if they wanted to due to like the residual self image. So I think it'll be, I I'm like really curious about how they're going to work around that. Like, are we going to secretly suddenly see Lawrence Fishburne up here? Because that would be <laughs> so great given how many interviews he's done where he's like, they didn't talk, call me to come back for this movie. Oh, I wouldn't put it past them to be honest. Pulling like a Jonathan Majors Kang move. Well, and there does seem to be such a, there's something going on with aging, isn't there? Because there's Keanu looking at his reflection getting younger, and then if Morpheus is now younger. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, one. Of, so one of the, the stories in the Matrix Comics collection, it's sort of, it's an illustrated story more than a comic, really, but mm -hmm. by Neil Gaiman is about that sort of time manipulation. Is it Goliath? Like, yes yeah yeah because that's the name that, yes mm -hmm. yeah so this the protagonist gets his brain overclocked 
so he experiences more time than is actually passing basically so he can be trained up to handle an event that's going to occur in the outside the matrix world oh so there is somewhat of a precedent for kind of playing with that like disparity in time experience between the real world and inside the matrix so i wonder if it's something like that that might be occurring well it's also a question of how what happened to neo's body at the end of because it's still even within like the canon including all the other stuff um it's it's unsure where his body is. And I think there's a couple scenes. I mean, also Trinity's, I would assume. They probably don't know where Trinity's body is either. And I saw some speculation about her potentially being like a cyborg or something, which I think would be awesome, but also kind of oh. insane. Like if she melds with a machine. Cause she gets like, I mean, she gets like, you know, like run through by <laughs> random wires, like three or four of them. So she's at that point, you're like, oh, she's not surviving this. Yeah, at least the physical bodies, definitely. Even more certainly than for Neo. or Morpheus is alive at the end of the movies, right? But He dies. I think he gets assassinated in one of the games. Yeah, in the Matrix Online, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's assassinated. So I wonder if that's going to be incorporated into it. If his, like, existence is, like, now within the Matrix. If all of their existences are, like, only in the Matrix... Like they're essentially echoes, like residual echoes of the the programming that was around them, so to speak. I don't know. I honestly, I have no idea. Like the the main thought is like, how are they going to be resurrected, right? So we honestly, we have no idea. <laughs> I I have to say, as far as trailers go, I I really think they hit the mark with this one because there was just a lot to speculate on, and I'm still. I saw two like. The, the name of one of the medications that he's taking is like a an allusion to something. Oh. Well, there's a lot of like Alice in Wonderland. A yeah. lot of Alice in Wonderland illusions. So I wonder how how that will play into because we don't even really well, we there is a shot where we see him in the real world and still hooked up and he's, you know, got like the shaved head and like everything. So I don't know. I'm really I'm so curious to see how they're going to pull it off and if they'll pull it off, because I think there's a little bit of a fear that it might just be like another Matrix rebooted, which would not be the best. But I have faith in Lana. So and I do feel like some of some of what we've seen, it really feels like it's building up because I guess I guess as we'll, we'll see as we talk about it. So in my mind, the first Matrix is so intentionally stunted, like it's very much ended before the ending, like knowingly kind of, but very, very binary too. When we were going to talk about that, but in a way it, but it's presented to the audience, not like, not on its face as that it's just presented as like, this is the ending or it could be the ending, which I guess in part is probably just the constraints of making a studio movie. And I think it's very clear that they got way more creative control for the two sequels. Yeah, I think they ended it in a way where they were like, if we don't get more movies, this will be kind of a succinct ending for everybody. But if we do, then we can really expand on it. I mean, they really leaned into it when he literally shows off that he can fly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now we're going to move on and talk about The Matrix, which was released on March 31st, 1999, written and directed by the Wachowskis. The film stars Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, Hugo Weaving, and Joe Pantoliano. 
The movie was a box office hit and a financial success, turning the $63 million budget into over $460 million box office hit. I mean, that's that's insane. <laughs> that's where you get more creative control in your sequels right there. <laughs> and a bigger budget. It's so funny hearing about the production of it and how nobody understood the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it seems like about 40% of the people on the production side of this movie were just, I, I don't get this, but we'll just go with it and see what happens. Yeah, I read like an interview from Sci-Fi Wire with um, the martial arts choreographer, Yun Wu Ping. The first time he watched the movie, he watched it without Chinese subtitles, just in English. And he is a Hong Kong choreographer and a director so he was like i don't really follow the story and i was like honestly if it was in english i didn't really understand the story when it first came out either like i don't think i fully grasped what was going on either you know (laughs) well and i think part of that like i was saying i do think part of that's by design like i think you are supposed to sort of misunderstand this movie the first time you watch it no i agree for sure it's best it benefits from rewatching and investigating Anyway, so worldwide, it was the highest grossing film of the year. On the production side, it popularized the visual effect known as bullet time and also refined, you know, a whole new genre of science fiction. It blends cyberpunk, the Hong Kong cinema action. It was a huge investment for Warner Brothers, even, you know, at the $60 million, which I think in 1999 would have been way more money because it incorporated philosophical themes and difficult special effects. The Wachowskis actually hired underground comic book artists Jeff Darrow and Steve Scroxy, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, to draw a 600-page shot-by-shot storyboard for the entire film to show to Warner Brothers so that they could accurately depict their idea. I, I think there were a couple of these moments where they filmed trinity's first um escape scene and showed it to warner brothers before they finally i think got the the thumbs up and approval from them because truthfully if you got this script i think it would be very hard to comprehend pre the existence of the matrix yeah it's kind of well and i think you see why it's so watershed too afterwards and people still use it as a touchstone and it kind of makes sense that like it wasn't there to reference itself before it was there Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just it's so difficult to piece together all the different references that they make. And like I said, they hired the legendary Chinese martial arts choreographer and film director Yun Wu Ping. Um, He's worked with Hong Kong superstars like Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, Donnie Yen, Jet Li, Michelle Yeoh. He then went on to work on the sequels and also Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Kill Bill. I mean, this guy's a legend and it's hilarious to hear him talk about how he trained the actors because so many of the stunts the actors did themselves. Also, Keanu Reeves had like spinal surgery like yeah. a couple months before he started it. Did you know that? Yeah, I I watched, I, I think it's The Matrix Revisited, which was like the documentary movie that they put out. Basically to keep people satisfied because there was such a demand for Matrix stuff after this movie came out. While they were making the sequels, they put this out mm-hmm. to kind of like give people another DVD to buy. And he talked about it extensively in there. And I mean, he talked about just showing up like in, I like, bandages the first time and talking to them about whether or not he could do it or not and it's just so funny because i remember reading like Yuan Wu Ping like oh like these people are like way too weak to be like attempting the like stunts that they're asking us to do but they you know they trained all like even wire work is like really really exhausting to work on and i think it was just like he was just like yeah they had to work really really hard and Keanu Reeves was like known for his like resilience I think there are a bunch of scenes where they were like you don't actually have to do this like 
We've got like the stunt man. The camera's going to be far away. You don't need to do this. Like to preserve your spine, we're going to need you to take a step back. That's not what the one does though. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why we're not certain what the status of his body is and resurrections and whether or not it's still in one piece. (laughs) So, okay. The movie won four Oscars, including for best film editing, sound and visual effects. It won two BAFTAs and two Saturn awards. So a lot of special effects, sound directing. It has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes right now with 155 critics, 85% among audiences with 250,000 reviews. And on Metacritic, it's got a 73 with 35 critics and a 9.0 with um, out of 10 with 1,740 uh, audience members. So how did you feel coming back to this movie? Well, I only left it so much. Um, can say, so I think in February 2020, I reviewed the comics collection for the B. And so in preparation for that, that's when I revisited the trilogy, really, for the first time in a while. And it blew me away all over again. And I really, I think I, I I don't know if I was as big a fan of the sequels as I was upon rewatching. Because I'm a much bigger fan of those. I I think some will probably go so far as to call me an apologist for the sequels. (laughs) Because I, I really adore them now. So... I guess that's how I felt was it was sort of a a surprise almost that I ended up liking the trilogy as much as I did. But I will say, I think that the first one is the one that I most faithfully remembered in part just because, I mean, I was one of those people who wanted to buy more Matrix DVDs and was anxious. Yeah. So I I rewatched the first one a lot, just waiting for the sequels even. So I've seen it a lot more times than the other ones. But um, I did still read, I mean, I still found things, as I'll probably say for later in the conversation, but um, I noticed things that I don't recall ever noticing before. So that was pretty cool. I think referentially, I remember the first movie the most because people show clips from it all the time. People are always talking about it. For the sequels, I really enjoyed going back to them and exploring them more and exploring what I might have missed, especially with the mythology of it. I think it goes really, really deep in the mythology and I just wasn't able to grasp that. I think I meant I mentioned this last time, but yeah, like returning back to this one, I don't think it was, you know, I I recently, very recently, like last year, I did like a Matrix rewatch, but I only rewatched this first film. So it wasn't it wasn't too unfamiliar. You know, it was it was good going into for me actually looking at the shooting script and really seeing what was missing and what they kind of cut out when it came to dialogue, which we are going to talk about. Morpheus, we are calling you out. Yeah. So we're running down the movie and we're going to be going in depth and we will be referring to the script. I will be reading some of the lines from the script that are different. So let's get into it. So we open on a computer screen and hear Trinity and Cypher on the phone with one another discussing Neo as their call is being traced by the agents. They're outside the heart of the city hotel where police are swarming the building and Agent Smith arrives with Agents Brown and Jones. A chase ensues as Trinity must escape the cops and the agents. She barely manages to get away, but the agents reveal that there is an informant and they know the name of their next target, Neo. I really enjoyed this. I think everybody enjoys this first opening scene. That's like the 
it's like it totally lures you into this world like the sight of trinity in her like black leather and like taking on all these guys and her like pausing like flying in the air and kicking them in the face i mean that's a that that's a this is an iconic fight scene which we will call this iconic fight scene number one of trinity escaping the agents and she's like described in the script as a leather clad ghost which i just think is so beautiful so good well and it's so quick it's like quickly sets up so many of the stakes you've got the cops are a problem but the real problem is these mysterious agents and they've got this like snappy funny dialogue but like not that funny and kind of weird like right out of the gate and like are they real like what's their deal the jurist my diction crap is so bad i hate that line so much (laughs) but you remember it (laughs) and it just it it kicks it off so quickly and you're just i mean you're just sold immediately even can we mm-hmm. are we talking about the commentaries already? Can we talk about the critics? Commentary? We can talk about it. We can always talk about the critics' commentary. Even the, so, you can you know like the Matrix is really firing on all cylinders when those guys are just like, oh no, but this is good though, and this is one of those scenes where they're like, we are of course talking about the critics' commentary and not the philosophers' commentary. The philosophers who are so sacred and so beloved to us, and just that no, that's a very respectable and intelligent commentary. But the critics' commentary <laughs> is well, there's some there's some footnotes from a teenager that are very insightful. Yes, yes, we will get into. We will get into the fact that one of the critics' teenager teenage sons adored this movie, and when his father looked at him and said, this is all kind of dumb, isn't it? His son looked right back at him and said, shut up, dad. <laughs> Just uh, to, to give the uh, those who may not have listened to this a point of reference, the, um, the critics agree at a certain point that The Matrix is not a political movie, so... <sighs> that's where they're coming from i almost i was so angry already at them and then i was like these people do not understand this movie (laughs) it's just it's that's just blatant like you cannot like it but that's just a ridiculous statement (laughs) and they recorded that commentary after all three movies were out and they had some time away like this is like post post like the whole trilogy that they recorded this commentary and they're still like this is not a political movie and i'm like Surely, surely some reviews managed to figure that out, right? Well, these three critics happen to be three white men, so... Not Sorry, theirs. I mean... Yeah, so the area code of the phone number is also set in Chicago, which, if anybody didn't know, the Matrix real world is technically set in Chicago uh, for these first three movies, and I think it's a homage to the Wachowskis who came up with the idea of the Matrix while they were living in Chicago, in the uh, DVD intro- like written introduction, they wrote a little introduction that said, when the New York Times demands that Hollywood deliver action films that are loud, dumb, and obvious, one might be inclined to ask why. One afternoon over a decade ago, we sat together in a cramped Chicago apartment in a room with a view of a brick wall, casually pondering said why, wondering, dot, dot, dot. So I I like that they kind of pay homage to their roots. You know, they definitely seem to know Chicago as a city very well. I'm I'm curious why the sequel would be taking place in San Francisco, actually. I don't know if it's just the tech connection or what. I think it's like Silicon Valley, like very like because that's like I think when this when the original trilogy was taking place, it's very like Y2K yuppie you know, like businessmen, but now it's very much like Silicon Valley tech industry. I wonder how much they'll incorporate sort of our our newly changed views or 
our evolved views on technology and like social media and stuff. I mean, that scene of the got people in, on their phones in the elevator, I think is a kind of a signal to that. Yeah, I think it's super interesting too that MPH uses the word triggered because that's mm-hmm. been so co-opted out of any sort of psychological context into like buzzword context that a certain stereotype of Silicon Valley people would be apt to use. So I'm curious how far exactly the Silicon Valley connection will end up going in the movie, especially compared to, I, I guess, I, I guess arguably you see some of the Chicago stuff out of the gate with the cops and stuff. Yes, for sure. I think they have a lot of those like very quiet sort of ties and also a lot of the crossroads when they're on the phone. Even if if you were a Chicago native, you'd be able to identify because I know the critics were talking about that in the like final when they're when Neo is like rushing to try and get out of the Matrix and he's being chased by the agents. They're like, oh, yeah, this is definitely set in Chicago. Yeah. And there's like a lot of number stuff too going into this scene, you know, Trinity's in room 303. We will return back to this room at the end of the movie. A lot of numerology, a lot of, well, numerology is not the right word. A lot of number play, a lot of threes and ones and zeros. Mm -hmm. They love, they love their threes, their ones and their zeros. And I think also like one and two, they really enjoy like multiples of three. I know it sounds like I'm just throwing out a bunch of numbers, but I think it makes sense. I, I'm totally picking up what you're throwing down. And especially, too, because they play with this idea of what exactly is the relationship of, is just Neo the one? Or is it really Neo and Trinity? Or is it really Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus? And, like, and obviously there's the religious parallels to that with the Trinity. The Trinity, and, yeah. yeah. And then, I, I mean, I think a lot of religious traditions have, like, the three-headed gods and stuff mm-hmm. like that, so... In a lot of mythology, two, three is a very sacred number. Um, So we also have this little scene of the agents with their earpieces hardwired into the Matrix. I really like that. It's like they're like the landlines too. this like physical embodiment. I really enjoy that. So then we meet Neo, a hacker and a software developer at his computer searching for Morpheus. He wakes up to the words, wake up Neo on his computer, which low key terrifying um, then the words, the Matrix has you and the order to follow the White Rabbit. So we get the iconic little scene of it saying, knock, knock, Neo. And right on cue, there's a knock on his door. In this scene, we have the song Dissolved Girl by Massive Attack. And I really like the lyrics of this. I was looking it up because there aren't that many songs with lyrics throughout this movie, except throughout the beginning where he's in the real world or in the Matrix. The lyrics is because it feels like I've been I've been here before. You are not my savior. I still don't go. Feels like something that I've done before. I could fake it, but I still want more, which I think is just so interesting about that comment of the you are not my savior, given that he is kind of like a savior figure. Or will become one. Mm, in his next life. Or in the, even in this one, I think. Oh, uh, well, I don't know. I, think, I guess it depends on what we want to point it to his next life. <laughs> he dies in this movie. That's true. <laughs> well, and then, I mean, He's like, already been resurrected. Well, and there's the spiritual death of being yanked out of the Matrix. Well, of Thomas Anderson, right? Well, I was thinking about that. Like, they each have, like, three deaths, you know? Like, him and Trinity have, like, three Mm. deaths. Because Trinity dies... I mean, if we call, like, being pulled into the Matrix, or pulled out of the Matrix, is a death and a rebirth, then we have a death and a rebirth in... For for Neo in this movie, and for Trinity in the next movie, she's also reborn. And then we have another Resurrections coming in December. So, very interesting. I wonder... (laughs) I kind of like that idea, you know? Yeah, especially considering they're part of that, like, trio of trios, you know? 
Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. I love this little scene description is at the center of this technological rat nest is Neo, a man who knows more about living inside a computer than outside of one, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to these days. Oh, surely. I mean, everyone in this movie can, right? (laughs) Every single character, literally. So the knock at his door is, of course, Choi, a man who in the script was supposed to be Asian, which really... Makes a lot of sense when he says you look a little whiter than usual. Uh, justice for the Asian Choi that could have been casted. Instead, we have a white ginger who it's OK. He fill I think he fills the role of of that character pretty well. And he sees uh, Neo sees a little white rabbit tattoo on Dujour's shoulder and he follows them out. That, her name's Dujour. I didn't realize that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. Oh, and also he pulls out uh, the Baudrillard Simulacra and Simulations, a hollowed out book that he uses to store his programs, which anybody familiar with the philosophy of this series will know that Baudrillard plays a very large role in uh, in everything, in the, in the philosophy of all of this. Well, you know, did, did you say that he uh, he wasn't a fan? <laughs> Baudrillard? <laughs> Baudrillard watched, I think, the first movie and did not dig very deep into it. I think he, I need to rewatch some of that, like his interview, but he, he didn't like that they seemed to misinterpret his idea of the desert of the real. And it seemed to him too binary, which I would agree. Like, I think he didn't enjoy how binary this, um, the first movie was. The first one was, yeah. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he watched the first one and then he checked out, honestly, which I do not blame Baudrillard. I think at this point he was he was quite old. so <laughs> He's got other things to do, I guess. But I think he might have liked the entire thing better if he would have given the second one a chance. I agree. I agree. But maybe he maybe he wouldn't have dug as deep. And, you know, he might have been he might have been more of a critic at that point. Yeah, that's true. Maybe <laughs> the, the architect might have. Maybe he would have related too much. <laughs> So we also then in the next scene, we have Neo meeting Trinity for the first time. And I love that scene where he's like, I thought you were a guy. And she's like, most guys do. And I just I love that so much. I just it is such a guy thing to assume that this legendary hacker is a dude and she just happens to be this absolutely beautiful woman. (laughs) So she reveals to us that that she knows that he's looking for the Matrix and and in the morning, he ends up getting yelled at his boss for being late because he stayed out all night partying. And he gets this mysterious phone in the mail and Morpheus is on the other end and the agents are now hunting him. Morpheus guides him over the phone on how to get away from them. But instead of taking the scaffold to the roof, like Morpheus tells him to do, he goes back into the building and is captured by the agents. So a lot of themes of authority and conformity in his workplace being part of a system and sort of being part of like a hive because like there's that scene description of him going back to his cubicle is like the entire floor looks like a human honeycomb with a labyrinth of cubicles structured around a core of elevators i love that because they're like little worker bees working for the man (laughs) it's even funnier when you like realize that they're you know they're in their cubicles just like they're in their little matrix pods outside Yes, yes, that's so true. Yeah, and I love that little speech that his boss, the awful Mr. Reinhardt, working for the man, gives him. You have a problem with authority, Mr. Anderson. You believe that you are special, that somehow the rules do not apply to you. Obviously, you are mistaken. 
This company is one of the top software companies in the world because every single employee understands that they are part of a whole. Thus, if an employee has a problem, the company has a problem. The time has come to make a choice, Mr. Anderson. Either you choose to be at your desk on time from this day forth, or you choose to find yourself another job. Do I make myself clear? Yes, Mr. Bernhardt. He, I mean, he makes a choice. He chooses a lot of... I like that also that he says, like, you have the choice to, because choice obviously plays a huge factor into this whole trilogy, into this whole story. I mean, even in this scene. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, to think of this choice that he's being offered in comparison to the one that Morphe is, is being offered, because this one isn't really a choice. It's like it's like the capitalist choice of, or the cap, you know, the capitalism choice of either you do this or you starve to death. So like, well, the illusion of a choice, yeah, too. yeah. So it isn't really a choice. And I mean, in the scene, he's kind of given some extreme choices too. You know, like you can either conform or you'll lose your job. And then Morpheus, like, oh yeah, go get on this ledge, get up to the roof, and get out of here. And he's like excuse me this is insane <laughs> yeah and he doesn't do it but then he later does things that are much crazier so <laughs> <laughs> well he doesn't believe yet he doesn't believe that everything and that scene he's like who am i i'm a nobody like why is this happening to me yeah it's interesting that i mean it seems like it really is just in his head though according to what morpheus tells him that he could technically do it then so in interrogation, we meet Agent Smith officially. He tries to strong arm Neo into giving up Morpheus by offering to wipe his hacking crimes off the record. When Morpheus refuses, he asks for his phone call, but then his mouth starts to meld together in truly a horrific scene. Yeah. And his mouth disappears and the agents drop like a fluke worm like bug into his belly button. Actual nightmare fuel. Yeah. And literally, because he wakes up not knowing if it was a nightmare or if it was reality. And there's some foreshadowing in this scene with Agent Smith pointing out his two lives, saying one of these few, one of these lives has a future, one of them does not. And he's right. He doesn't have a future within the Matrix. He has a future in the real world. Yeah, that is so interesting that his enemy, I mean, what he tells him is true. Just not in the way he thinks. So then he's contacted by Morpheus, who tells him that he is the one. And he goes to meet with Trinity, who is with Apoc and Switch. Shout out to Switch. We're going to get more into her character in the future. I'm going to use the pronouns her, but honestly, I feel like they, them could also work for Switch as a character. But canonically, I think she is presenting as female. So they debug Neo. And it's, again, a terrifying scene where they electrocute him in the process. I think it's so interesting, too, that the, the debugger has to look like that. Like, like why why does it have to look like anything? Couldn't it look like, you know, like a, like an Apple product or something? But they choose to make it look like, like a nightmare, like, B-sci-fi horror thing. It's got like an EKG on it too. Like she's like clear, and you're like, <laughs> yeah. excuse me, what? What exactly is the the mechanics of this thing? Oh my god, the claws into the skin. I love that Switch calls calls him Copper Top, and like there's that scene of like our way or the highway, which is kind of like hokey writing, but 
him him calling him copper top referring to his the fact that he's still plugged into the matrix he's still a battery quote unquote i love that little slang thrown in there so this is in the scene they take him to an opulent and run down hotel lafayette to meet morpheus and here morpheus tells neo more about the matrix kind of the matrix is everywhere it is all around us even now in this very room you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television you can feel it when you go to work when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Then Morpheus gives him the option of the blue pill, which will make him forget all of this, or the red pill, which will take him deeper down the rabbit hole. And of course, Neo picks the red pill. I mean, this is just a great scene. I love this, that scene of them in the rain and in the water. A lot of talks like of liminal spaces. I feel like there are a lot of liminal spaces in the Matrix, especially in this first one, we're first getting introduced to the Matrix. And that first scene with the water. I mean, a lot of in mythology, a lot of water rivers and oceans are known as liminal spaces in between where you're kind of in this in-between zone where you don't know if you're everything's kind of up in the air which I really enjoy and a lot of talk about fate versus free will and I think that's that there's that conversation between Morpheus and Neo in that scene where he's saying like I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my own life you know he wants choice do you believe in fate Neo no why not because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. And I think the trilogy proves that it isn't just about having choice or not having choice. It's about sort of a mix of the two. You know, there is a sort of fate element, but he has to choose that fate for himself. Yeah, it also, I think it's, it does sort of leave you with a false impression of, of what they think their perception on that at the end of this movie because i don't think it really is until the sequels that that idea really gets developed yeah no for sure i think as far as you can tell in this movie he is the one and he he has been fated to have this sort of savior position but we don't realize until i think actually you get that a little bit of that with the oracle and that like she's saying like maybe in her next life but from his point of view, he has to choose to become the one in order to fully realize the powers of the one. Like he has to believe in himself, basically. Know thyself is the phrase above them on the door. So I think that's, I think, yeah, I think it's mostly binary in this first movie. And in the second and third movie, they really dive deeper into how it isn't just fate versus free will. It isn't just good versus evil. It's not just human versus machine even. Okay, so do you believe in fate? Like, which kind of fate? Like, that your destiny's pre-written in the stars kind of thing? Or that, like, between our experiences and our makeup, we're basically predetermined to react a certain way? Either one. Like, what are your thoughts? Like, do you believe in the idea of, I guess, predestination, predetermination is, like, what traditionally fate would be you know like whether you think like oh we were fated to me or like this was fated to happen do you believe in that not really 
<laughs> yeah, me neither. I'm definitely more of like a free will person. Like I make my own choices. Like there's not like some kind of other force making decisions for me or like my life isn't pre-written, which would be kind of depressing if you think about it. If you're not a quote unquote chosen one. Yeah. So a lot more Alice in Wonderland references in this in this film, but especially in this scene. Um, you have Morpheus talking about feeling like Alice falling down the rabbit hole. And then in the next scene, we have him looking at that mirror that like heals itself and the reflecting of the through the looking glass themes. Um, also very strong gothic vibes in this hotel, which as an English major, I really, really <laughs> enjoy with the thunder and lightning raging. And the ruined furniture. Um, and- <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like dilapidated too. Like it's not a very, very bougie hotel. It's like nice, but it was nice once. Yeah, it was nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and in the script it says, across the room, a dark figure stares out, the tall windows veiled with decaying lace. He turns and his smile lights up the room. A dull roar of thunder shakes the building. I love that like Morpheus is like a Cheshire cat character like he's kind of smarmy always kind of like smiling but like in a mysterious way and not giving you straight answers yeah like he's holding a few cards that he doesn't want you to look at yet but like in a smiling way Mm -hmm. he wants you to trust him so would you take the blue pill or would you take the red pill red pill honestly i feel a little bit like cypher like i would take the red pill and then be like oh man I don't know if I can well, handle I eating think... slop for the rest of my life. I don't know. I mean, like those parties in Zion be banging. Oh, that's true. <laughs> There's probably real food in Zion. That's true. I would want to be unhooked and then like take me to Zion. I don't want to be on like a ship and like out there doing things. Like I want a little apartment in Zion, enjoying my life, being warm. Yeah. You see people doing that. So, okay, we see Neo taken to the next room. He meets Cypher. They run a trace program on where his real body is and they extract him. It's this crazy scene. We see him touching the mirror. It's liquid <laughs> and it's like, you know, like crawling up his his arm and down his throat. I think that scene is just so, it's super iconic and it's super weird. Yeah. To this day, I don't really know what that scene is supposed to represent. With the scream, like. Yeah, like the oh. <laughs> Sounds like a Zoom call is breaking up there. <laughs> <laughs> so we get the scene of his first his first rebirth into the real world. He bursts forth through this disgusting cocoon and he sees that he's hooked up to these machines and all these other pods next to him. He slides down this disgusting like drainage pipe into like yeah bio sewage and then he's freed from his prison and picked up by the nebuchadnezzar ship and there he meets morpheus in the real world and dozer who help bring neo's body back to life after his muscles have basically atrophied so when he finally wakes up morpheus tells him that it's not actually 1999 but it's more like 2199 but nobody really knows the year and we will talk more about that in the third movie because it's actually way further in the future spoiler alert it is yeah. not 2199 it is many nowhere near yeah, that <laughs> many centuries actually into the future so neo's also introduced a tank to dozer and mouse along with the rest of the other crew that he's met before in real life and he's plugged into a program for the first time a construct program consciously so what was your first reaction to seeing this power plant world in the real world the first time 
Oh, man. Such a nightmare. But so, like, believable, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Body Just horror, the... too. Like, ooh. Yeah. Well, and I, the, I mean, the special effects were, I mean, I'm really excited to see what they look like now. But for even at the time, they they... I mean, they did a really good job of representing that world and, like, bringing it to life in a way that was just so plausible. Horrifically realistic, some might say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, I think that was just, like, something that I could never have imagined until I saw it on screen. Like, I don't think I would have been able to visualize it until somebody else had, like, visualized it for me. You know, especially even reading the, the scene description, I was like, man, I could not have pulled this from this. So I really think the production designers and like you know the scene the people who are crafting these like these cg worlds are just like i mean that's amazing yeah well there's uh there's actually a futurama episode where they go to the near-death star where the elderly (laughs) are being held in it it is just a, a straight parody of the matrix where they're in an old folks home but their bodies are actually plugged in and their batteries but it's presented in a way that it's, like, much less body horror. Like, it's nowhere near as horrifying, but it is essential. Like, if you read the, the description of what these power plants are, you might picture that version of it. And it is just, like, nowhere near as atrocious and awful as the, like, <laughs> translucent red body pods with the quills. And the and they're red food. because it's, like, liquefied humans. Like, mm-hmm. so Which is disturbing. what they feed you, too. Yes! The Soylent Green! <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. Soylent blue pill, more like. Oh, no. That's what he's eating when he's eating the steak, right? That's literally choosing to eat your fellow human over. Oh, but it looks like a good steak, them. though. It does. It looks like a really nice steakhouse. They, they bet, like, money means it's nothing, fake. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so they better, like, <laughs> like, they better be pulling out the stops there to seduce him over to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can also see themes of that in in other television shows and movies too. Like I think San Junipero of Black Mirror, that sort of idea, like they upload their subconscious into this like matrix-like world afterlife and their bodies, I mean, they're not being used as power plants, but their bodies are just, you know, left in like this old folks like nursing home, like this very bougie nursing home where their minds can be uploaded into the into the cloud, quote unquote. So I think that this definitely influenced a lot of a lot of future stories too yeah uh the rick and morty season finale literally had a line that referenced the matrix so everybody references the matrix iconic (laughs) and i love that scene when he says like why do my eyes hurt and then he's like you've never used them before and you're like (gasps) just hearing that is very like oh my god he's never opened his eyes before like neo truly like him, him in the real world has never opened his eyes he's never lived so when he says am i dead morpheus says far from it it's true So in the Construct program, Morpheus reveals to Neo the truth of what the Matrix actually is and what led humanity up to this point, which is, again, like I said, Second Renaissance, a truly horrific short that I watched as a child that really made me respect and fear machines. So Morpheus explains to Neo how the machines rose up and fought the humans and how the humans eventually lost the war. And in losing the war, humans have been reduced down to basically a battery, and they're no longer born, but they're grown like crops. They're placed in the Matrix, which is a neural interaction simulator, a computer-generated dream world built to keep humans under control and use them to power the machines. This is obviously incredibly overwhelming news to learn, and Neo ends up throwing up and passing out. Understandable? Can't really blame him. He he ate a lot of mirror earlier. Yes. (laughs) 
So there's this concept of residual self-image that we get introduced in, which is the mental projection of your digital self. And I think this idea might have been even more overt if the original script idea for the character of Switch was filmed. Switch's character is played by Belinda McClory, who was supposed to only play one half of the character. So Lily Wachowski said that the character shows where her and Lana's headspaces were when the Matrix was coming out. Um, It was all about this desire for transformation, but it was coming from a closeted point of view. So you had the character Switch, who was supposed to be a character who would be a man in the real world and then a woman in the Matrix. And I thought that was really interesting. I really wish they had actually included that. But also in hindsight, I think maybe just doing male and female might have been too binary and having Switch be more androgynous might have been a little bit more fluid. But it would have been it would have been cool to see that. Yeah, I do think it's interesting and telling, especially in the context that they were presenting it that they chose to stick with the woman who was cast for the Inside the Matrix mm-hmm. version of the character. Of, as to which, you know, if you if you have the two characters and like you can't have both of them because it was obviously supposed to represent that one was a mask mm-hmm. to a certain degree. I, I think it's very telling that it's from their vantage point at the time, their egg vantage point that they went with, um, <laughs> that they chose to go with the actor who was going to be inside the Matrix as the real version, the definitive version of the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. And I like that her character, when we see her in the Matrix, she's the only one who's dressed in white, which is makes her also stand out as like a visually as a character among the group because everybody's normally wearing like black or dark colors. Um, and she's, you know, the only one in like all white. Yeah, and that's especially interesting given the context of what the character was originally supposed to be and this idea that in some ways, while they're, they are going into the Matrix in some ways, that's it's more a celebration for her than it is for the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's about your self-image, right? It's like how you yeah. want to see yourself. So it's how Neo sees himself with hair and without, you know, the all the like plugs and stuff like that. It's how you would ideally see yourself, which I think is why it's going to be interesting in the fourth movie, you know? Definitely. Yeah, but I do think there's a sort of an aspect of like for... I guess the cis characters, like the like the way they dress when they go in, is like badass and like dark and cool. Mm-hmm. Whereas she's kind of going for a different look, and I think that's sort of telling, given the full context of the character, that it is different for her going into the Matrix than it is for the rest of them. For that reason, even given that it is entering into like the simulacra, for sure. And speaking of simulacra, we see during the scene there's um. A mention of the desert of the real, which is a direct reference to Baudrillard's work. I think in the original, like very early script, he actually talked. He mentioned Baudrillard by name, which would have been way too on the nose. I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I get, I mean, according to the original script, he also had a lot of chances to uh, rehearse this shtick, right? <laughs> Damn it, Morpheus! We are gonna. Ooh, I've been waiting. But yeah, like that, this, we'll talk a little bit more about what the desert of the real actually means, because I think that warrants a little bit longer discussion of the actual um, scenario that Baudrillard presents, but it is very much, it's very much something that he came up with. So it's a lot of like very heavy nods. I think everybody basically had to read Baudrillard's book when they were cast. Um, And then uh, Keanu Reeves had to read like two other books, but everybody kind of had to understand this book before they could really jump into it. So Neo wakes up after passing out and Morpheus apologizes to him for taking him out of the Matrix at his older age. We have a rule. 
We never free a mind once it's reached a certain age. It's dangerous. The mind has trouble letting go. I've seen it before and I'm sorry. He also tells him about the one and how he freed the first humans from the control of the Matrix. And he has control of the Matrix. And that the Oracle prophesied that the one would return and free them all. Very interesting that we learn Neo is not the first one that Morpheus has freed. He is actually the sixth one that Morpheus has freed. And given the fact that he's done it before and we later see all the potential ones at the Oracle's apartment are all basically children, it kind of makes you wonder how young Morpheus was freeing these literal children and making them into prophets. Um, this is the beginning of my cipher justification speech. <laughs> I mean, it, it like it completely recontextualizes the character to know that. Exactly. Like Morpheus is, especially when I think about the fact that they're kids, there's this whole aspect. I mean, power dynamics, him being pulling a child whose brain is not fully developed into a world that is so starkly different from what the Matrix is and telling them that they're the one. That's why in the very first opening scene, Cypher says, we're going to kill him. Like this person is not going to survive. We're going to kill him just like we killed all the other ones. Like I think Cypher feels responsible in some ways for the death of these people who thought they were the one and ran headfirst into an agent and got killed. Yeah, well, and it just, it, like the decision to sell out the rest of the crew, especially when you're thinking that Neo is the first time that they've come across this situation it seems like why are you doing it now like we've already seen Neo do some stuff even though he hasn't fully achieved his oneness but knowing that he's the seventh in a line of six dead possibly kids it's like okay well maybe you're maybe you're tired of watching people die in front of you that's pretty justifiable yeah and I think we'll talk later on like he says that he's been out of the matrix for nine years so that means that some of those like the ones might have been around for you know a good amount of time and if it's your first time out of the matrix you're surely bonding with your with your shipmates and you you become friends with this person who you know morpheus has told you is he's the one and then this person dies and i mean it's just i that would be devastating to experience once not much less like five other times you know like oh well and then when the rest of the crew is true believers like it's just gonna feel alienating Morpheus especially he is a very true believer very uh he he drank the Kool-Aid like he truly believes in what he's doing he does have a point where he mentions which is also cut out where he's talking to Neo and he says that he's he lost his way for a little bit after I think the last one so he's like I'm back on track now which also is kind of like terrifying because it's like what if Neo isn't the one and you just killed another person mm. especially after it seemed like you would uh Maybe re re recognize the error of your ways, but apparently not. <laughs> he will. He will never. <laughs> I am super curious. I I'm, I wonder if we'll ever get to hear the story of what, like, what exactly it is that set him on to Neo and set him back on this path. Especially That's if he's fallen off it. Yeah, I wonder how he he found Neo. Although I guess in some ways Neo found him because Neo was searching for Morpheus. So maybe that's, that's how they. Fair. They kind of seek out, you know, potential the ones. So Tank loads up some combat training for Neo and we get iconic fight number two with Neo and Morpheus in the little dojo. 
And in this lesson, Neo learns the rules and the limitations of the Matrix. Important to say here that Morpheus says the rules are no different than the rules of a computer system. Some can be bent, others can be broken, meaning he doesn't really have to follow any of the rules. (laughs) (laughs) So they load the jump program. And of course, Neo, who is not ready for this, and we have that moment where he's like, you see Morpheus jumping, launching a thousand memes. Neo's not ready (laughs) and he falls. And he disappoints the whole crew, um, but you kind of, nobody passes their first time. And it is leaning into the idea that he has to choose to become the one and he has to believe that he will become the one. So he feels the pain when he comes out and we learn that the body cannot live without the mind. And if he dies in the Matrix, he dies in real life. Although this is kind of maybe up for debate given resurrections and also (laughs) with the kid in the next two movies, like I have a lot of questions about death. (laughs) trinity too right so that's very true and neo i mean he dies and then he hears her voice and he comes right back Mm -hmm. so later trinity brings neo some food and cypher taunts her about her connect her connection to him not knowing that she is feeling some feelings for him and she knows that she will fall in love with the one which is also like what were those kids like how was her feelings towards those kids that he was that morpheus (laughs) was bringing in like Maybe that's what brought Morpheus back from his depression phase is... Well, she never told anyone. I thought for a while that Cypher knew, but she said she never told anybody what the Oracle told her. So I'm just like, she must have known, like, when he was bringing in, like, 16-year-olds that she's like, well, maybe it's not a romantic love that I'm supposed to feel. (laughs) Botanic love. (laughs) Like an aunt? Like I'm supposed to Like love for a sidekick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so cypher doubts that neo's the one obviously um but we we know that trinity is beginning to believe a little bit this is also in the scene we we get tank tank mentioning zion the final human city which is located deep underground where it's still warm so what do we think about the choice of the name of zion for this obviously a lot of biblical connections but also like kind of again i'm questioning why the critics did not think this was political when they literally mentioned zion <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it, too, is especially like that period of speculation between one and two, like that was like a major point. So I think it really needs to be a charged name because Mm. it is all we really had to go on for like two years. So it really had to feel like something that had potential to go somewhere new. Yeah, I I, I don't think think a lot of people I was just gonna say I don't think a lot of people guessed that it was going to be like it was either. Yeah, definitely not. That's what I think is interesting. Like, I really like that scene in the second movie, too, when Neo, like, can't sleep and he's talking with the councilman and he's like, oh, we all, like, surviving off of machines. It really brings in that, like, duality, you know, the or the lack of duality, actually, kind of the fluidness between humans needing machines to survive and machines needing humans to survive. Definitely. So this is the beginning of Neo's path to enlightenment. He has to free his mind. So that he can bend the Matrix to the, his will, which he'll learn a little, bit, a little bit more about when he meets Spoon Boy, when he meets, when he goes to see the Oracle. So in another training program, Neo is taught about the people within the Matrix and also the agents in the Women in Red program. The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters. The very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. 
and many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Um, and the agents are the gatekeepers, preventing the people from being freed. Eventually, they will have to fight these gatekeepers. But the problem is everybody who's faced the agents has died. So that's really um, a confidence boost, I think, for Neo to hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, this line is like, I don't know. I think about it all the time. <laughs> the, the hopelessly dependent on the system, they will fight to protect it. I mean, I really think about that, like, on a regular basis. Well, that's like in the real world, if we want to make a comparison, you know, assuming we aren't in the Matrix, shout out to Elon Musk, not really. (laughs) Anti shout out? Yeah, anti shout out to Elon Musk. Assuming, you know, like in the real world, there are people who will fight to protect a system, you know, people who are in positions of privilege who will fight to protect a system that potentially abuses other people. Well, and I think there's people who like don't even benefit from the system who will fight to defend it too. Who don't know that the system is using them. Yeah. So they are pulled out of the program when the ship is under attack and we get the first look at the active threat of the real world, a.k.a. the Sentinels, a.k.a. the Squiddies, which I always thought was a very cute name for these killing machines. Yeah, the horrifying killing machines. Well, they're described in the script as having shark-like malevolence, which is such a great description given how they move and how they like turn their head really sharply and um, the only weapon that the humans have to fight them is an EMP. It does work pretty well, though. So they, they've got that going for them, at least. It does. But in the third movie, we kind of know that if they use it, they basically screw themselves over. When they attack Zion, at least, it's like they use it. And then they're also like the humans are also down because they also are reliant on machines, ironically. So in the next scene, we get Cypher talking to Neo. They share a vile drink with each other. As he reveals to Neo that he wishes that he could have taken the blue pill. Cypher's advice to Neo is to run from the agents and not fight them. Then, twist, we learn that Cypher is the informant in the next scene within the Matrix where we see him getting wined and dined by the agents. And he is willing to give up Morpheus in exchange for being plugged back into the Matrix because Morpheus, of course, has the access codes to Zion. So some cut dialogue from the script that really gives us more insight into Cypher's motivations, like I was talking about earlier. Um, So Cypher says, now don't tell him I told you this, but this ain't the first time Morpheus thought he found the one. It keeps him going. Maybe it keeps us all of us going. How many were there? Five. Since I've been here. Oh my God. Since I've been here. I didn't even realize that. So it's, oh man. How many, how many bodies? Yeah. (laughs) So Neo asks, what happened to them? Cypher. Dead. All dead. Neo, how? Cypher, honestly, Morpheus. He got them all amped up believing in bullshit. I watched each of them take on an agent and I watched each of them die. Little piece of advice, you see an agent, you do what we do. Run, run your ass off. So again, he's been out of the real world for for nine years, as we learned from his scene with the agents. And he's seen five other kids die facing off of agents. I mean... It's more than just the gruel. Like, it's more than just the stakes that what makes him want to go back to ma- the Matrix to be an actor. Yeah, well, and it's such a more nuanced portrayal of the character to leave those lines in. So Of both I of guess the characters. It, yeah, very true. And I I wonder, I, I, I very, I'm very much curious who exactly demanded that those things be cut, whether it was... A con- like, a, whether it was a creative decision to present this movie in a more binary fashion... Or if it was just initially before they got more creative controlled by having such a successful movie, the studio basically told them, no, 
audiences won't accept these nuanced characters make them more black and white i want to believe that it's more the studio because i think that scene in particular of him saying like five since i've been here really like speaks to like the fact that he is responsible i mean he straight up says like morpheus is responsible for doing this so they kept in that line that he says when you see an agent run but he didn't they didn't talk about the fact he was responsible for all those deaths i feel like it was the studio but i'm sure it might have also been a creative decision to maybe be a little bit less ambiguous when it comes to morpheus so that we we know we can trust him yeah, well, and also, I mean, we're obviously meant to feel at the end of this movie that, like, Neo is a superhero who's going to save the people from the Matrix, so. For sure. So, while Cypher enjoys his fake steak, the crew is enjoying their bland, gloopy bre- breakfast, and Morpheus comes to tell them that they are going to meet the Oracle. So, the whole crew suits up. As they arrive, Cypher drops a phone into the trash for the agents to trace, Neo meets the Oracle, who has been with the humans since the beginning of the Resistance. The Oracle, Morpheus says, is a guide. And she knows what? Everything? She would say she knows enough. And she's never wrong. Try not to think of it in terms of right and wrong. She is a guide, Neo. She can help you to find the path. She helped you? Yes. What did she tell you? That I would find the one. He leaves Neo at the door and Neo enters into the Oracle's apartment where he has, he just meets a group of children, very disturbing, who are other candidates for being the one. And this is where he also meets Spoon Boy. So an interesting thing to note when they come into the Matrix for the first time after he's left In the script, he says he squints at the sun, which seems unnaturally bright. He's the only one without sunglasses. Is this the reason why everybody wears sunglasses in the Matrix? Because the actual, (laughs) like, fake simulated sun is way too bright when they're in a world that's blanketed in darkness. That's pretty funny. So despite her name being the Oracle, Morpheus calls her more of a guide and he says she can help you find the path. So I really like that. You know, it's not... There's this whole idea of like, you've already made the choice, you just need to understand why you made the choice, that she helps you understand your choices, which I enjoy. So there is no spoon scene, there's only the Matrix, and once you learn to understand it, you can learn to bend the Matrix to your will, which we'll see him do towards the end of the movie, for Trinity, of course. And also for Morpheus. Yeah, that's true. So I guess there you go. (laughs) That's true. Okay, so then we have this... Another interesting dialogue scene between Neo and Morpheus that was cut out. And I honestly think this one should have been kept in because I think it's really, really interesting how Morpheus is portrayed in this. So Morpheus says, faith is not a matter of reasonability. I do not believe things with my mind. I believe them with my heart and in my gut. Neo, and you believe I'm the one, Morpheus. Yes, I do. Neo, yeah. What about the, what about the other five guys, the five before me? Morpheus tries to hide his heart being wrenched from his chest. Neo, did you believe in them too? Morpheus, I believe that the Oracle told me no. I misunderstood what she told me. I believe that it was all about me. This is difficult for Morpheus to admit. Morpheus, I believe that all I had to do was point my finger and anoint whoever I choose. I was wrong, Neo, terribly wrong. Not a day or night passes that I do not think of them. After the fifth, I lost my way. I doubted everything the Oracle had said. I doubted myself. And then I saw you, Neo, and my world changed. You can call it an epiphany. You can call it whatever the hell you want. It doesn't matter. It's not about a word. It's about this. 
So I can't explain it to you. All I can do is believe, Neo. Believe that one day you will feel what I felt and know what I know. You are the sixth and the last one. You are the one. His eyes blaze. And then Morpheus says, until that time, all I'm asking from you is for you to hold on to whatever respect you may have for me and trust me. And the scene description is, Neo feels a rush of Morpheus's intensity, the unadulterated confidence of a zealot. Whew. That is an intense scene. I also love that Neo, in the scene description, Neo believes that he's a zealot, which is like, Morpheus is a true believer in all the good and bad ways that that exists. Yeah, well, I think it's an interesting idea, too, if maybe it's necessary to have that zealot in order to achieve what needs to be achieved. So Yeah, I think so, too. And it's interesting when we see him in Zion and how other people view Morpheus. They, It's not just Cypher that believes, that thinks Morpheus is kind of kooky. It's like, basically... <laughs> It's a lot of those other people who are like, well, I live in the real world and I'm not here for your your prophecies. Like, I need to protect what's mine. <laughs> yeah. So now we have Neo meeting the Oracle. Being the one is just like being in love. No one can tell you you're in love. You just know it through and through. Balls to bones. Okay. Now, I'm supposed to say, hmm, that's interesting, but then you say... But what? But you already know what I'm going to tell you. I'm not the one. Sorry, kid. You got the gift, but it looks like you're waiting for something. What? Your next life, maybe. Who knows? That's the way these things go. But then also reveals that Morpheus is a true believer and is willing to sacrifice everything for him. Morpheus believes in you, Neo. And no one, not you, not even me, can convince him otherwise. He believes it so blindly that he's going to sacrifice his life to save yours. What? You're going to have to make a choice. In the one hand, you'll have Morpheus's life. And in the other hand, you'll have your own. One of you is going to die. Which one will be up to you? So I think that's really interesting. I kind of think that like, she sets him on the path to his own belief by telling him that he will have this choice. Yeah, totally. Not exactly a self-fulfilling prophecy, but sort of. <laughs> and I also like that she calls Neo cute, but not too smart, which is just a hilarious burn on his on her behalf. It really is. It makes me think of like, how, did you ever watch a Cinderella story? With no. like Hilary Duff? Oh my god, there's this scene where the stepmother character played by Jennifer Coolidge, I think, she's like sun tanning on the like lawn and like Hilary Duff's like Cinderella character brings her smoked salmon for breakfast. And she's like, oh, sorry, I fell asleep studying. And she's like, Sam, I've always wanted to tell you this. You're not very pretty and you're not very smart. And I always think about that whenever people say like their people aren't cute. My friend and I used to say that to each other all the time. Like, you're not very pretty. And you're not very smart. <laughs> <laughs> so I think of this now with the, the Oracle like, 
you're cute. I can see why she likes you. And Neo's like, who? She's like, oh, not very smart, though. (laughs) (laughs) Returning from the Oracle, Neo notices a deja vu. And this is our first instant of a glitch in the Matrix. And the team realizes that something has changed in the Matrix, which I didn't realize until now, but like it meant that like they walled off all the exits, basically, like the agents like walled off the exit. So that's how Mouse gets trapped in the room and gets killed. R.I.P. Mouse. And they also cut the landline so they aren't able to get out of the building. So the group is hiding in the walls as they try to escape, escape capture. But Cypher, quote unquote, sneezes. I don't know if it was a real sneeze or if it was just, you know, him trying to give their position away. <laughs> yep. Giving his agent buddies a heads up. Yeah. Yeah. And we have the first shot of um, an agent taking over a body in a scene, which I think is really cool. Like the way it like electrifies and then like morphs into an agent. And this is the moment when Morpheus sacrifices himself to take on an agent one-on-one. And one of the best scenes, I think, in the entire movie where he screams and headbutts through <laughs> the drywall. <laughs> Just through the wall? <laughs> So this is another iconic fight scene between them. Mostly it's just Morpheus ramming himself through the wall because he quickly gets overwhelmed. And of course the team gets separated. Cypher somehow gets away and he manages to get out of the Matrix first. So before the gang can escape the Matrix, he attacks Tank and kills Dozer. R.I.P. Dozer. We meet his uh, we meet his, his wife in the next movie, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, in the next one. Mm-hmm. Cypher calls the gang and re- reveals how much of a creep and a snake and a traitor he is. And I say creep because he definitely jumps on top of Trinity's prone body and it's very gross. He kills Apox and then Switch. Hashtag not like this, an iconic meme launched once again. <laughs> Probably repeatedly. Literally the best meme of all time. Not like this is the best thing to say at all times. Not like this. But as he's about to kill Neo, fate intervenes. I mean, Tank gets up and kills Cypher with one of those electric shooter things. And Neo and Trinity are saved. But unfortunately, most of the crew is dead. Yeah, I really, I like the scene where Cypher says, where Trinity says, you've been freed. And Cypher says, free, you call this free. All I do is what he tells me to do. If I have to choose between that and the Matrix, I choose the Matrix. So interesting that he doesn't feel like he has much agency in this group. Yeah, especially considering the, and the false free choice that Neo was offered by his boss earlier that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. How did you react to this scene when you first saw it? Like, Cypher's betrayal? Well, I didn't like him at all. I mean, honestly, it wasn't until you told, like, you told me about the original script that I really started considering his character. Because in addition to him being a creep to Trinity in this scene... What they left in the movie when Neo's having the vile drink with him is he's just obviously like creeping on women in the Matrix. Which he yeah, just blonde brunette, like redhead. Redhead, yeah, oh. just gross. So, given the five the five dead kid thing, it like really changes his character from basically just kind of a, a gross sellout villain, in my opinion. It really gives him some dimension, I think, like, as a character. Like, it made me reconsider what, like, I can understand Cypher's position, like, completely. If you have to watch all these people die and just, you know, you could be watching it happen again with Neo. Like, this is, like, the straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing. Totally. So we cut to 
Morpheus's capture. And while Agent Smith monologues, as all great villains do, uh, he monologues to Morpheus as they try to extract the Zion access codes out of him. Outside of the Matrix, Tank suggests that they need to pull the plug in order to protect the codes. Um, that one person is not worth all of this, but Neo stops him and realizes this is a moment he has to choose Morpheus over himself. And he tells Trinity, I'm not the one. But of course, Trinity already knows that she's kind of fallen in love with him and she doesn't believe it. So Neo's like, we have to bring Morpheus back then. And he goes into the Matrix. Cue the scene, guns, lots of guns. Guns. Lots of guns. <laughs> Iconic. And Trinity goes with him because she's the ranking officer of this ship and she gets to go, damn it. It's true. I really like in this scene, we learn a little bit about the Matrix and how Agent Smith says, Did you know that the first Matrix was designed to be a perfect human world where none suffered, where everyone would be happy? It was a disaster. No one would accept the program. Entire crops were lost. Some believed that we lacked the programming language to describe your perfect world, but I believe that as a species, human beings define their reality through misery and suffering. So the perfect world was a dream that your primitive cerebrum kept trying to wake up from, which is why the Matrix was redesigned to this, the peak of your civilization. I say your civilization because as soon as we started thinking for you, it really became our civilization, which is, of course, what this is all about. Evolution, Morpheus. Evolution. So I feel like as a as a preteen and teenager watching this scene, I was like, oh, is he wrong? <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> dark. What did you think of his, his little speech about the Matrix? Uh, well, I mean, it's pretty much the biggest exposition dump we get, like, until the Animatrix. And it's, I don't it's such an interesting, it, it makes him such a more interesting villain. Because, I, I mean, they, they gave him a lot of nuance. And that you assume that he is just an agent of the system. But then, like, you find out that he actually had, like, he kind of hates the system, too. And he hates the role that he plays in it. And he's a prisoner, too, of the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is really, it's such a nuanced portrayal of that character. Mm -hmm. especially hugo weaving i mean applause to hugo weaving a odd choice for a childhood crush from my cousin but it made me really focus on his character because i was like why is she interested in this much older man if you like if you've listened to him not playing agent smith like he sounds so di like so different and jovial and stuff so it really is just like this incredible performance so super charismatic and also super compelling too i mean he also says in the scene he's like as soon as we started thinking for you it really became our civilization this idea of like machine supremacy this evolution to like he's like the world is ours now like we own the world and it's kind of sad because he doesn't get to live in that machine world he has to be the gatekeeper so if he truly believes that his life is so limited like he has to spend time around these humans you know as he says it's the smell and his a person with a sensitive nose i kind of understand that <laughs> having been to many comic cons you know the bo is strong <laughs> that's that's one of the good things about the COVID era i guess is you don't have to be subjected to that Less smells. Yeah, the mask really helps. Wear a mask, people. Okay, so at this point, Neo doesn't actually believe he is the one, but in making this choice, he is on the path to belief. 
Um, and as Agent Smith interrogates Morpheus one-on-one, it gets a little weird. He reveals that he hates the Matrix and he wishes to be free. I hate this place, this zoo, this prison, this reality, whatever you want to call it. I can't stand it any longer. It's the smell. If there is such a thing, I feel saturated by it. I can taste your stink. Every time I do, I fear that I've somehow been infected by it. It's repulsive, isn't it? I must get out of here. I must get free. And in this mind is the key, my key. Once Zion is destroyed, there is no need for me to be here. Do you understand? So once Zion is destroyed, he won't need to gatekeep anymore. And downstairs, Trinity and Neo enter the building with all of their guns. And another iconic fight scene ensues, which is just amazing and also incredibly just showy. A show of, of true uh, beautiful violence, as they would say. Is the reason that scene's so iconic? I mean, there are some really great scenes in it, and I love the soundtrack during that scene. It's very like it's super futuristic. I enjoy it. It sounds more like the so- the soundtrack for two and three. I think it's like one of the instances of the studio only letting them go. Like, oh, like a techno soundtrack for a studio movie, never. But I think like <laughs> that scene like proves that like, but yeah. And then in the second and third movies, I think they were given a little bit more. Oh, creative yeah, they control into over it. the music yeah which with huge dividends mm-hmm. yeah for sure i mean you said that the soundtrack was a very big influence for you when it came yeah to especially those ones the two and three when it was leaning full on into like the house music and stuff so. mm-hmm. yeah for sure we also see them riding the elevator cable up when he shoots the uh, the bottom and the bomb explodes. And I really like that scene sort of as a symbol of them together always, like as the one. I like the idea of not Neo just being the one, of it being, being Neo and Trinity together because it's it really fits the... I, I like the idea that it's so, you know, non-binary and it's not just this one guy. It's, you know, she's helping him through a lot of it and she's guiding him and... It's her love that really inspires him and pushes him. And we see that in the trailer, too. Like, uh, young Morpheus says, like, she's the reason why you're still in here. Like, she's the only thing that you want to hold on to, which I I enjoy. I I like the romance of Neo and Trinity. They get up into the roof, and this is iconic scene, fight scene number five, where we see Neo fighting the agents, and he dodges bullets for the very first time, which is an amazing scene. Totally. Absolutely awesome which uh, apparently the stunt people were like this is the easiest scene to film because it's so slow (laughs) (laughs) so trinity kills the agent after neo dodges the bullets and notes that he moved like one of them like an agent and they hack a helicopter and rain down bullets on the agent shocking absolutely absolutely shocking that none of them actually hit morpheus and injure him (laughs) (laughs) Morpheus wakes up from his little, like, he's kind of, like, knocked out from the drugs that they're giving him, and he frees himself from his shackles in another screaming scene, which Morpheus really likes a good yell. (laughs) It's true. He's good at it. Oh, yeah, the, oh! (laughs) 
So he he runs towards the helicopter, which is like on the side of the building, but he gets shot in the leg in the process. And Neo makes this like insane jump and catches him in midair. Again, I think this is like the helicopter scene was one of the scenes where they were saying like, this is a very difficult scene to film. They had to build like a crane and like there was all these things where they were like, we can't actually drop like stuntmen <laughs> off of a helicopter because what if we miss by a couple feet? Like they would be dead. And then the um the city in the background too is like a like a composite of Sydney that's like designified. <laughs> so it doesn't really look like Sydney anymore. Yeah, I think that was one of the few scenes where you could try and like maybe tell like, oh, that's Sydney. But yeah, so in this scene, he's shot in the leg, he's caught, and he watches as Neo saves Trinity's life in that helicopter. And I love that scene with the helicopter smashing into a building and like you know, you see the liquid li- liquidification of the uh, yeah. of the glass. So cool. So Neo tries to tell Morpheus, like, I want to tell you that I'm not the one. But Morpheus stops him and says, she told you exactly what you need to hear. That's all. Sooner or later, Neo, you're going to realize, just like I did, the difference between knowing the path and walking the path. Very philosophical. I think that's very true. He had to he had to he had to walk the path before he knew what where he was going. This movie is really just filled with killer line after killer line. I Well, I love that line because it's like one of the few lines that Morpheus says that really, really makes sense upon hindsight versus some of the other stuff that he says, which is a little bit more smug and a little bit more smarmy. Yeah. <laughs> I have some problems with Morpheus, obviously. <laughs> he, he kills a lot of kids. So. <laughs> so after this, we have the agents finding out that they escaped the building. And there's this great line of scene direction with Agent Smith in the script that says, Agent Smith stares, his face twisted with hate. He will never be freed of the Matrix. <laughs> He's just so bitter. He's just like, I am never going to get out of this literal prison. <sighs> you know, too, it's it's really funny when you learn, like, the truth of the situation, too, is he, I mean, he's believing this false narrative, too, that, oh, if I stop Neo, then problem solved. Goodbye, Zion. But, as yeah, as we learn, that's not true at all. If you stop yeah. Neo, then the system will reset. And you will still be stuck doing exactly the same thing. Well, that's why he's, he thanks Neo in the second movie. Like He's like, you freed me from the mm. system in the only way that he could. If Neo hadn't destroyed Smith at the end of this movie, he would never have been freed. He'd be trapped in that same system. Because as we, as we know, like if it got reloaded, he'd just be back to square one again. Yeah, or whatever square it is, really. <laughs> what year is it? Tell us the square year. Nine, square nine million. okay so they save morpheus but now they need to get out of the matrix um the agents have found their location in the real world and are about to send send some sentinels after them they get to that subway and morpheus is the first to answer the phone and disappear but in the corner there's like a man sleeping in the in the subway system and he sees it happen and of course that notifies the agents and so as trinity nearly tells neo about her prophecy she doesn't and she answers the phone right as she sees agent smith walking towards them cue another iconic fight between neo and agent smith where they smash each other's to bits but neo finally sheds his identity as thomas anderson and embraces himself as neo and he defeats agent smith momentarily you know agent smith can never truly be defeated until (laughs) until the end of this movie and I really love this scene description where Neo says, where Neo decides to fight instead of run. He says, slowly he turns back and in his eyes we see something different, something fixed and hard like a gun, gunfighter's resolve. 
there is no past or future in his eyes. There is only what is. And right after this is when Morpheus says he's beginning to believe when he doesn't run, which I think is really great. He makes a choice not to run, which everybody has told him to run. Even Trinity is like, you need to run. (laughs) And right before he says, my name is Neo, Agent Smith says goodbye, Mr. Anderson. And the description reads, he's not ready to die, which I think is very, it's such a like grounding thing to read in a script. Like, you know exactly what he's thinking in that moment. And you could see it in Keanu Reeves' eyes when he's acting too. Hear that, Mr. Anderson? That is the sound of inevitability. It is the sound of your death. Goodbye, Mr. Anderson. Is Neo. Just a great, a great scene. I really, really like this fight scene, and I really like hearing him say, "Like my name is Neo." Like he's choosing yeah. this name for himself. Yeah, and it really. I, I mean, I think of Thomas Anderson as a dead name. Really, it is. Yeah, for sure. Like I think very much like when the Wachowskis were going through their trying to find their identity, like this movie. Knowing, like, where they are now, this movie really reflects, like, their journey. Totally. So in the real world, Sentinels have found the Nebuchadnezzar, and they have to ready the EMP. Neo's running from the agents in this, like, great scene where the agents keep jumping into people and populating the city. And we see him go back to the original room in the heart of the city hotel where Trinity was first first seen in the first movie. Which, again, brings back this idea of Neo and Trinity as one person as 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 the one together you know kind of this connection oh i was just it also brings back that idea of revolutions and and repetitions and cycles of like the, we've seen the standoff between these two sides at this room before but how will it be different this time and the cycles of the matrix too like all the ones that have been here before like how many times have we seen this scene before as as far as we know up until now like up until the moment he gets into the architect's room, everything has basically kind of been planned out. Like, there, there's been choice, but, like, how much choice has there really been? So, yeah, and I didn't even notice, I didn't realize this until I was watching it this time and I read the script, but, like, Agent Smith is only able to shoot Neo because he realizes that he's returned back to that same phone that Trinity picked up, was talking on the phone on in that room 303. So he knows to, like, beat Neo up to it and i just thought that was a great little like thing like i only realized it in the script where it's like agent smith looks up and he recognizes where he's at which is like him sort of i think it's like him sort of using his deductive skills a little bit more not just being an agent you know yeah but that's i mean that's experience which is sort of a very human thing right (laughs) like yeah, it's it's so interesting. The only way he is able to transcend the, the situation that he's in is because he becomes more human, which is ostensibly the thing that he really wants to get away from. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so he beats Neo into that room and he shoots him multiple times. It's not just a double tap. It's like a quadruple tap. Um, <laughs> he's a professional. Yeah, he's, he's, not, he's not taking any chances. <laughs> The crew is, like, in shock as the Sentinels are breaking through the whole of the ship. I like the scene a lot where you cut to Morpheus's face and he's just like, oh, my God. Like, knowing what we know now, he's like, not again. <laughs> like, I'm really surprised that <laughs> I did I'm really surprised the Oops. script didn't say that. Like, Morpheus is shocked. He's killed another one. <laughs> <laughs> Number six. <laughs> oh, my God. At least. <laughs> 
But Trinity comes to him and she tells him that he can't die. And she reveals that the prophecy was that she would fall in love with the one and that she is in love with Neo. Neo, I'm not afraid anymore. The Oracle told me that I would fall in love and that that man, the man that I loved would be the one. So you see, you can't be dead. She kisses him and his heart comes back online, people. It's as good as that EKG. <laughs> Neo hears Trinity in the real world. It's weird to me that more people don't pick up that, um, that like, no Trinity, no no Neo is the one. And exactly, that he just would have yeah. been shot dead in that hallway at the end. <laughs> She's not just a love interest. Like, she is, like, he hears her through the real world and also, like, beyond the grave, you know? Like, his heart has stopped. He's yeah. dead. So Neo hears her and he gets up and he, I love the scene where he gets up and he like sort of stretches and like the walls like sort of curve around yeah. him. Amazing scene. That's like one of my favorites. A flex. Mm-hmm. A true flex. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> and then the the agents are like, what the hell is happening? And they start shooting him and he doesn't even have to dodge them anymore. He got, puts his hand out and they stop. He has died and after dying and being reborn, he is now the one. It's his next life. So this is what I was referencing to. <laughs> Yeah, here's number one or yeah, two. Yeah, second or maybe <laughs> or three. What is, what is death? But just a path to rebirth. <laughs> the Matrix. And in the scene, we see we see him looking at the code, and from his point of view, he can now see the code of the Matrix, and he easily takes on Smith, and then flies right into him, exploding him from the inside. And the other two agents are terrified and immediately book it. They're Cheese not. It. They're not. They're not paid enough. To deal with this. (laughs) (laughs) And again, Trinity yells for him to come back and he hears her. I really like that. She's like, get up, like, let's go. And he's like, (gasps) like he turns and he hears her. So he answers the phone and they set off the EMP just in time to save them from the Sentinels. And Neo wakes back up in the real world and he and Trinity kiss. And it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful beginning. We won't say ending. It's a beautiful beginning to their love. Yeah, it really is just the beginning too really the story they are about to be really horny is what i would like to say (laughs) all of zion in fact (laughs) oh my god just an orgy underground i mean god bless them what else are you gonna do down there (laughs) (laughs) they need to stay warm (laughs) they can't grow drugs (laughs) (laughs) so i love in the script when she tells him that she loves him and in the script it says her eyes close and she kisses him believing in all her heart that he will feel her lips and know that they speak the truth that's just such a really that's a beautiful line and then right after it says he does and they do his eyes snap open like what beautiful (laughs) they should become romance writers if they can't if they don't write any more scripts you know like write romance novels please Maybe Matrix 5 will be. It doesn't have to be 5. They could make a, they could write an installment of like a romance novel set in the Matrix world. That's true. Or just like a, <laughs> with, with Neo and Trinity even. Uh, yeah, a thousand percent. So I love the scene. More talks about no binaries. There's not even a binary between life and death. It's not just life and death. There's, there's a fluidity to it. And I really like that. 
So in the final, very final scene, we hear Neo on the phone and he's delivering his message and he looks at the people around him that need to be freed and he's ready to free them. And he, of course, flies at the very last scene, which is just so outrageous. My question is, do you know who he's speaking to in this? Because I think I thought he was speaking to the agents, but I don't think he's speaking to the agents. I think he's speaking to like the machines in general. It's kind of unclear for me. Yeah, I think... I think it only really works under the false impression that you have after you've only watched the first one, where you kind of think it is a binary conflict of us versus them. So, of Mm -hmm. course, he's talking to them, but almost immediately at the start of the second one, it starts breaking that down and making those dichotomies mean basically nothing by the end of the third movie. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not sure who he thinks he's talking to. There's that face that he meets in the third one, but... I mean, at that point, like at this point in the narrative, he doesn't have any idea of what even the architect is. Which, and the architect that. presents himself as the head of the Matrix. And then we later learn, no, oh, it's just another false head. Oh my god, us. yeah, the baby face head. Like you're the, I think it's called the mm-hmm. Deus Ex Machina in the. Yeah, that know. makes sense. Well, it should be Machina Ex Deus, right? <laughs> I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. So I think he is speaking to the machines in general or whoever created the Matrix because he says, like, it's a choice I leave to you and a world without rules or controls. I mean, that's so clearly... A reference to the Matrix instead of just the agents who are bound by those rules and controls. Yeah. Yeah, as we see through Smith. And in mm-hmm. fact, we see that Smith is just kind of a kind of a fool, the same way that some of these other characters are, where he thinks that he, oh, I think I've got all these. I think I've got it figured out, but he's just another pawn. Yeah, for sure. And then so we I have two actual different versions of this final speech, which I think is really interesting because I think they actually made it really more ambiguous in the final cut, which I think is good, especially if they're kind of keeping it open for more storytelling. Yeah. So this is from the script from 1998. um, And it starts with, hi, it's me. Very, very adorable. (laughs) Hi, it's me. Hey, it's me, Neo. How are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, it it reads like, hi, it's me. Neo texts the machines. (laughs) You up. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I imagine you can feel me. You won't have to search for me anymore. I'm done running, done hiding. Whether I'm done fighting, I suppose, is up to you. I believe deep down we both want this world to change. I believe that the Matrix can remain our cage or it can become our chrysalis. That's what you help me to understand. That to be free, you cannot change your cage. You have to change yourself. When I used to look out at this world, all I could see was its edges, its boundaries, its rules and controls, its leaders and laws. But now I see another world, a different world where all things are possible, a world of hope, of peace. I can't tell you how to get there, but I know if you can free your mind, you'll find a way. So does it seem like he's talking to the machines at this point? Because it seems a little bit more like we both want the world to change. Like, who is he speaking to? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it seems more like, uh, like uh, I mean, it just seems like political speech to me, really. <laughs> like, less about, like, anything within the movie or the Matrix, even, and more of, like, what, 
like the underlying themes that it's getting at really of like a mission statement almost i think it would almost like it would fit better at the end of the third movie because i think it shows too much self-awareness for neo where he's at at this point i think the 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 replacement one that they went with is much better for the the -hmm. false dichotomy that we end on yeah yeah and like i'm gonna read the like 1996 one which is the earliest version that i could find um that's way more confrontational but this one i think i really like that it's like he talks about the matrix being a cage or a chrysalis like him talking about the matrix in this non-negative non-purely negative form like it can be a cage but that's because we choose to make it a cage and i think that's also like a good jumping off point when you think about the kid who actually like freed himself from the matrix and there are other characters who free themselves from the matrix because they choose to free themselves and they they choose to be free instead of being caged so i kind of like that but i do think it is kind of too distant you know for the for where we are in the story so then the 1996 version as i said even more confrontational starts with i know you're out there I know you're working as fast as you can to catch me. I thought I should call and let you know how things stand. (laughs) How considerate of him. It's like an ex. Oh my god, here we go. This (laughs) This is where we get really confrontational. I know you're real proud of this world that you built. The way it works, all the nice little rules and such, but I've got some bad news. I've decided to make a few changes. And this ends... With Neo flying, but also a kid with his mom. And the kid points out that there is a man who is flying, but the mom doesn't believe him. Which I think this is a key thing of making drafts and editing, because this is some bad writing. (laughs) (laughs) Some Tom King level writing. (laughs) Oh my god, it's just like, I've got some bad news for you. Like, I bet you're real proud of yourself. (laughs) This is if if Neo was Sawyer, like if Sawyer oh, was no. playing, <laughs> bitch, you're real proud. Of I can see that. <laughs> this is this is Sawyer Neo. This is Sawyer yeah. Neo for sure. Oh my god! And I love that you're like in our Google notes. You were like this kid who sees Neo flying is the critic's son. <laughs> <laughs> he deserves to be out of the Matrix. Get him to Zion ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> so the the critic was like, "No, there's no one flying," and the kid was like, "Yes, shut up, Dad." <laughs> <laughs> I hope that kid's doing. I hope I that kid's that a line. movie critic. We need him to be a movie critic. Yeah, seriously. Like, honestly, he got it. I, it's really funny because the critics are like, "I think kids will understand this movie more than we will," and I'm like, "Well, at least you know." It's a surprising moment of self awareness for them. Yeah, in a very rare moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there's that, and then there's the one who, like, for some reason is really perceptive about sartorial choices and, like, really keyed into the costume design in, like, interesting ways. And, like, in, I didn't really agree with anything else that critic said, but then, like, he was, like, has some really smart observations about the costume changes. And I was like, okay, well. At I least there's maybe, that. <laughs> yeah, you've got your specialty. Maybe just focus on that next time. Well, clearly it's not only for young people because we love the philosopher's commentary and they are definitely not young people. I mean, these are That's like true. much older guys, but they have freed their minds. I mean, they they definitely see the world it, without the boundaries, you know, like they, they're mm. able to think out of the box because, I mean, obviously they're philosophers, you know, if anybody's yeah. able to think out of the box, a philosopher should be able to. And I love that their fan, their fandom of the, the movie got them cast in the sequels. 
little cameo roles. Wait, what? Right, well, one of them's in the, he's on the council. One of the philosophers. Really? Yeah, is like on the council. Like, it's like oh a small God. cameo role with like just a couple of lines, but. I love that for them. They're so cool. I would love to, I mean, low-key, I think they're a little high when they're doing their commentary, but like, I have no problem with that. They're super. They're philosophers. Yeah, they're definitely like what I would call a free spirit. You know, like yeah. the way they they approach the commentary. <laughs> I would well, definitely. What would you expect from Zion leadership, right? <laughs> oh, a thousand percent. I mean, I would definitely recommend if you're a fan of this movie and you have access to the DVD. Honestly, if you're near any library, I'm sure that they have multiple copies, which is how I got a hold of it. You should listen to the philosopher's commentary because it is pure gold. They are hilarious and they're super insightful. We didn't even really get into a lot of the philosophy in it because I think it's going to take some time. But like there are mentions of like Manichaean philosophy, which is like good and evil and how like this story really goes against it in the later two movies is like so prevalent. Like I love the idea that there is no like true good and evil because that is just a very Western philosophy. And I think this movie leans into a lot more Eastern philosophy than Western, of course. Totally. And um, some highlights from this, from the script, which I really love the script. I love reading scripts. And I, if you love reading scripts, I encourage you to read it because it's super, their script, their scene descriptions are just beautiful. Like the way they describe it. In the first, very first scene, there's this line where they say, a blinding cursor pulses in the electric darkness, like a heart coursing with phosphorus light, burning beneath the derma of black neon glass. Like that is just such a visual image. I think it really gives you an idea of like the vibe of this movie. Like they could have easily just said like a green cursor is like blinking on and off on like a black screen. Totally. And like this this description of the the digital rain, which is like the matrix, the entire screen with racing columns of numbers shimmering like green electric rivers. They rush at a 10 digit phone number on the top corner. So it's just like this description of it calling calling it green electric rivers, I think is a very good image, especially if you don't know what this is supposed to look like. Totally. I also love the description of, of the hotel. <laughs> I love the description of the hotel where it's a place of putrefying elegance, a rotting host of urban maggotry. <laughs> oh my God. Is that not genius? <laughs> it's so good. This is just a great movie. I love the color theory of the movie. A lot of the scenes in The Matrix are hued green, which I really like. And of course, we have pulled from that knowledge when it comes to the trailer and how much they love using color as like a signifier. And so many, so many of those scenes, I mean, the real world is kind of cool and blue, which, you know, might speak to the blue pill, but it's just <laughs> kind of this, this much cooler. I think it's more because it's in the dark. And it's this world without true sunlight. There's no warmth to it. Um, yeah. And then when we go into the Matrix, of course, it's green. So. Yeah, it's a, it's just like there's no part of this movie that isn't operating on all cylinders. It's just so good. And especially too, like I really think that it's, it's just elevated by the next two movies that reveals that it it let you believe some false narratives and it let us its characters believe some false narratives even when it thought that they were eradicating those and moving up. And it's interesting to think, like, people who've only seen the first movie are kind of still, like, trapped within the Matrix. Like, they don't really know the truth of what the Matrix is. Because it really, I mean, it gets flipped on its head in the next movie. Like, when we meet the architect and we learn the truth of what the Matrix is and what Zion is and the fact that the resistance is planned. 
like everything that the humans have planned, like everything that they've worked so hard for is actually not real. Like they, or it's not something that they chose. It's like, yeah, it's just, it's devastating to learn. And yeah, I can't imagine how the council and like, you know, like characters like Mifuni would feel knowing that something that they fought for so hard is actually just contrived by the machines yet again. It's not a political movie though. Not at all. You know, I think it's more <laughs> about, about guns that. and, you know, like leather. cyberpunk and leather. <laughs> <laughs> and following white rabbits, which is not an allusion to anything as far as I'm aware. <laughs> oh my God. That's like the one thing that they picked up too. They were like, oh, look, Alice in Wonderland. What a great reference. And I'm like, that's the one you picked up out of <laughs> well, all of they them? They congratulate themselves too and be like, oh, well, I guess that's just for us. Like, yeah, that's the reference that's just for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I also, there's like this, this talk about, we didn't really talk about it, but the costuming in this movie. And I love how the costuming for, especially Trinity and Morpheus is really, is really fitting because Morpheus has like a green tie, which like really fits into the idea of the Matrix. And Trinity, I think the uh, costume designer was describing that her leather is supposed to be shiny to like where it kind of looks like mercury. Like, it's, like, Hmm. almost fluid in a way, and I really like that. I mean, I love her outfits. They're, like, absolutely iconic. Well, it's the same costume designer for Shang-Chi, so she was probably there, which I wish I had known in advance, so we could... We were were probably there (laughs) with her! on our podcast. (laughs) Oh, man. For the listeners, I was invited to the Shang-Chi red carpet world premiere, and Avery was there with me, and we got to experience the joys of Shang-Chi together in the light of the Marvel sun. I mean, it was just amazing. (laughs) <laughs> it was very cool. And even cooler when I learned that apparently the Matrix's costume designer was there as well. Oh my god. We gotta we gotta figure out a way to reach out to her and be like, come and talk to us about the costuming. <laughs> so that is it for the very first movie, The Matrix, 1999. And um, I'm sure we'll dive even deeper into The Matrix itself and also, of course, the Matrix universe in the following movies we're going to be discussing matrix reloaded next week um you can find us at matrix 404 pod on twitter and you can also email us if you have any questions or comments it'll be matrix 404 pod pod at gmail.com i am Therese laxon and this is avery kaplan and uh we'll catch you guys later bye bye You're cuter than I thought. I can see why she likes you. Who? Not too bright, though. Now that you're old enough, there's something I've always wanted to tell you, and I think you're ready to hear it. You're not very pretty, and you're not very bright. I'm so glad we had that talk.